That's me again. Good morning. I thought after last weekend you guys would do a better job than that. Good morning. Awesome, awesome. Will you join me as we pray? Father, uh, we exalt you. God, just to sing that song this morning just humbles me to think that one day we'll see you face to face. God, and exalt you. God, thank you for the opportunity this morning to be here. Uh, God, thank you for the opportunity this morning to be in conversation with you. I know so often that's something we take for granted, but because of your finished work, because of you, what you accomplished on the cross, we have this opportunity. And the fact that you care, the God of the universe, that you care about each and every one of us, that you know us intimately, how many hairs are on our head, God, it's so humbling. We exalt you. God, this morning I'm just thinking of John the Baptist and his prayer that you would increase and that we would decrease. And God, that's my prayer this morning. I'm consistently humbled by the fact that you would use me, God, which is proof that you can use anyone, God, to communicate your word. So I just pray that I would get out of the way, that your word would be living and active as we know that it is, and it would do what it does. And God, that it would speak to our hearts, and that this would not just be another service that we come to on a Sunday morning where we're distracted and thinking about other things going on in our lives and what we're going to do next. But God, this would be a time that we meet you, and we understand more of who you are, not just more about you, more of who you are, and God, how that impacts us. And God, finally, as I'm just praying, what comes to mind is, uh, and this humility is that the fact that what you accomplished on the cross means that you have accomplished everything, that we already have all blessings in you. God, may we appropriate that this morning, may we think through this this morning, that if you never do another thing for us, what you've done is enough. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, one of the things that's been really encouraging to me uh, over this past week is that your elders here and the worship team here, um, they've made comments to me. They've said, hey, I hope that you found joy in preparing for the sermon this week. I hope that you found enjoyment in that process. And guys, that's encouraging to me. Because preaching can be hard work. I respect the fact that Ben does this so often, and Brad and Scott and... Uh, Lance is doing that in Fort Worth this morning, and um, that Kai's over at another church this morning, some of us that are going to be a part of this church plant team. It's hard work, but guys, I found joy in that. What's given me a lot of joy is your feedback, that you've been encouraged, that you guys have told me that you dove into Acts 2 this past week. That's what brings me joy, is that it's encouraged you guys to move deeper into God's Word. So thank you for that. Thank you for that encouragement this morning. Um, Guys, uh, we were in Acts 2 last weekend. We're going to be in Colossians 1 this morning. So... Turn with me to Colossians 1, and you can just kind of stick your finger in Colossians 1, 1 there. I'm going to take just a few minutes to explain the direction of our message while you're doing that. Guys, the verse of focus this morning is going to be Colossians 1, 28, but I want you to keep your finger in Colossians 1, 1, because we're going to start there. In order to take a proper look at this verse, this Colossians 1, 28, it's going to require a little bit of work from us this morning. It's going to require... I think the best way I can say this, it's going to require to swim kind of deep into the pool and back really quickly. So the way that we're going to do that is I'm going to use two terms this morning that I want to kind of equip you to use. One of them is macro and one of them is micro. In any kind of Bible study preparation, you guys that are familiar with Bible study know that there's an observation time and there's an interpretation time. So another way to say that in preaching mode is macro and micro. That macro is kind of this observation mode. That We're going to, we're going to take a bird's eye view of much of Colossians this morning. Then we're going to dive in macro or micro, excuse me, for a few minutes and, and unpack this verse, this Colossians 1.28, and we're going to zoom back out macro. Is that clear as mud? 
Yeah, okay, good. Uh, so first, we're going to take a macro approach, and we're going to capture a snapshot of the letter we know of as Colossians. It was written by Paul and Timothy to the church in Colossae. And in doing this, we're going to build some context of the letter, and for the most part, we're going to stay in this letter. So we're not going to drift very far from Colossians this morning. So just keep your finger in Colossians. Second, we're going to look micro, we're going to go 128, and we're going to explore it. And we're, what I want you to see, what I hope that you will see, is what a treasure this verse is and that you will hold on to it, and that you will take it with you. So I was thinking about how to communicate this in one more way. I thought about this. Imagine for a second that you're walking through just a beautiful field of lush, tall, green grass. And, and all of a sudden, you're walking through this tall, lush, green grass. You notice something that reflects, and you see something down in the grass. and It's reflecting, and you reach down, and you pick it up, and you find that it's a, it's a precious stone that you've just found. As, what would you do? You'd pick it up, and you'd turn it over, and you'd look at it, and you'd, you'd see its beauty, right? And you would hold on to it and then and treasure what you found, and then you'd take it with you. Because that's much of an illustration. That is an illustration of what we're going to try to do this morning. Is as we walk macro through the book, the book of Colossians, we're going to be walking through some tall green grass. And then as we find this verse, 128, we're going to go micro. We're going to pick up this gem, and we're going to turn it over. We're going to hold it up. We're going to hopefully understand its value. We're going to treasure it. We're going to take it with, you, with us. Read with me in Colossians 1, verse 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So a lot of text there, but guys, macro, what's going on here? Um, let me set this up. Guys, there's no indication really from reading Paul, uh, of Paul or, his, or the book of Acts that Paul ever reached Colossae okay? uh, at all during his travels or his missionary journey. So what has happened here is that a man named Epaphras, he had previously heard Paul's teaching in Ephesus. He had been there and he'd heard Paul proclaiming the gospel. So he heard the message and then he takes this message back with him to where he's from, which is Colossae, and he plants a church there. And this is the church that Paul is addressing. So just as we read, Paul opens the letter and right out of the gate, he says he's thankful for their faith in Christ, for their love for one another, and for the fruit of their ministry. So remember, Paul has not met them, but he's heard of them. And guys, that's important. And I just want to stop there for a second. That's important. Look at verse 4 again. He says, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So Paul tells, says here that he's heard of their faith. He tells us that, uh, this tells us that their faith was public, that it was evident, that their love for one another was evident. And guys, just a side note, there's, there's an inseparable link in the New Testament uh, between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the saints loving the church. In 1 John 4, it would say it this way, that if a man loves God but hates his brother, he lies and the truth is not in him. So and my point is that we can't love God and hate the church. And we see that here, that Paul has heard of this evidence of faith, of how they're loving one another. It's public. Next, he's going to explain why they love one another. 
and why they love the gospel. Let's pay special attention again here as we look at verse 5. He says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So why do they love one another? Because they love one another because their hope is in heaven. Their hope is in the gospel. That's why they love one another. Church, we live in the information age today. I know that you guys would agree this. From the time we wake up to the time that we go to bed, we have darts of information thrown at us left and right. We have news, we have sports, we have celebrity gossip, we have text messages, social media alerts. I mean, last night, 11 o'clock, laying in bed, my, my phone is buzzing. This morning, it's buzzing again. It even buzzes when my alarm system goes on and off, right? It, it's always giving me some sort of a message. There's a constant voice proclaiming something in our lives to be true. And guys, messages proclaiming hope are everywhere, aren't they? I mean, have you ever noticed that almost every commercial that we ever hear or that we see it has to do with hope? If you think about it, it's everyone. It says, my life was terrible before I had this. Without this thing, my life was bad. But now that I have this thing, fill in the blank, whatever commercial it is, I have hope. I have meaning. I have purpose. Our marketers know this. They feed this eternity that's been yes, he says, with hope. Or, my life would be better if I had this. In marriage ministry, sometimes my life would be better if we didn't have this, is what some people used to say. But think about that for a minute. Fill in the blank. Are you seeking hope in something? Something other than Christ? This is what he's going to be driving home this morning. Because most of humanity puts their hope in the good guy syndrome. Many of us do this, even in the church. We don't really even believe it, but sometimes we do it. We think, man, I'm a good guy. I'm better than that guy down the street. I'm a better mom than that gal down the street. I'm better than my neighbor is. I'm a better parent. I'm better at work. I'm just kind of better. We do this. Guys, the scary part of the Bible is not that God judges our wickedness. It's that he judges our righteousness. Ben's going to be talking about this when we get to Isaiah, and I'd love to be here that morning. But it's Isaiah 64. It says that our, our righteous works are seen as filthy rags before him. Guys, this is why we need the cross so badly. It doesn't matter how good we think we are. Our righteous acts are filthy before him. This is the weight of the gospel that we must feel consistently if we're going to understand where our hope truly lies. Guys, Christ bore the weight of our sin on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, that's what gives us hope in the gospel. That's the hope that's laid up for us in heaven. That's a bit of a side note. I want to look at some more context here. So we're still macro here for just a minute. We know that Epaphras, he's planted a faithful church in Colossae. We know that this church body has been fruitful. And that the evidence of their hope and fruitfulness has been made public because of their hope in the gospel. Because what happens next? That's what we're going to look at. What happens next is that this church begins to experience some difficulty. And it's experiencing difficulty because false messages of hope and false doctrine are beginning to enter this church and this is much of the reason that this letter was written. Uh, illustrate this a little bit more. At the time this letter was written, Rome was the epicenter of the world. Magnificent. And if you know your history, you know of the Roman road systems. Some of you guys are going to nod your heads uh, thinking about that. But Rome was the superpower of the world that built such quality roads, amazing road systems, that some of them are still in use today, even some bridges, you want to understand. Um, Guys, this allowed the world to come in and out very easy. So as Rome is this epicenter and they've built these roads of travel for folks to come in and out, what they did is they shrank the world. 
So Rome had people from everywhere, from all cultures and walks of life. So you had music, you had art, you had food, you had religion, uh, all from different ethnic backgrounds, all in one place. Now, in some ways, this is not all bad. I was thinking about this week, and I'm going, this is kind of where we get Tex-Mex, you know, where we blend things together. Tex-Mex is a good thing. Tex-Mex is a good thing for the church. I'll even make that statement from the pulpit. (laughs) But it's not good. Uh, Syncretism is what we're talking about here, and syncretism is not good for the church. It can be really dangerous for the church. Syncretism is a mixture. It's a, a blend of a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, that's all kind of thrown together in one pot. Uh, guys, as people from all over came to Rome, so did their different views and their backgrounds, and they were all kind of thrown together in one pot. Their faith systems, their religious backgrounds, their rituals. So what's going on here is the influence and syncretism of Rome was beginning to influence this church. As Rome was power and it was prestige, Rome was glory. And in many ways, what Paul is addressing is that Rome was often seen, seen as the Savior itself. It was competing for the place of Savior. Along with it, guys, you had dietary laws and intellectualism and legalism, philosophy, asceticism. Guys, all these little subtle influences, alongside the lure of Rome itself, it began to produce what we know of as a Christless Christianity. It was beginning to enter the church and Epaphras was concerned. So here's what Epaphras does. He travels to Rome. And there he finds Paul in Rome, in prison. And he shares his struggles with Paul. And it's here that Paul and Timothy wrote this letter. So macro, in this letter, Paul encourages the church. And he addresses syncretism by reminding the church of who they are in Christ. And he warns them to not adopt what culture is throwing at them. A minute ago, we were talking about all these darts that are thrown at us. It's really similar. Okay, he's he's going to tell them, hey, don't run to the next thing. Don't run to the next message of hope. Micro, he does it with a message, he does it with a method, and he does it with a mission. We're going to explore all three things this morning. So basically, we've just walked through some tall green grass this morning. I hope that made sense to you as we've kind of set this field in front of us. And now we're going to reach down. We're going to pick up a precious stone. We're going to look at Colossians 1.28 together. It's our verse of focus this morning. 128 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Some translations say, Him we proclaim, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature or perfect or complete in Christ. We're going to hone in on maturity this morning. So at a macro level, I want you to already see that in this verse, Paul is providing a roadmap for this church. We've built the background. We know what's going on. This church has been faithful. There's an evidence of it, but there's this syncretism that the church is beginning to adopt. So here's the roadmap. He says that Christ is the message from hope. Him we proclaim, the gospel. He says that they must warn and teach each other, one another, to not move on from the gospel, not to adopt this syncretism. This is this warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So he's pointing them back to the gospel. And that the goal for them is maturity in the gospel. There's a message, there's a method, and there's a mission. So what's the message? Guys, that's the first point for today. The first point is this, him we proclaim. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Him we proclaim. The message, guys, is Jesus. The name of Jesus Christ must be proclaimed. Turn with me for a second to Colossians 1, 15 through 20, so we can read together just who Jesus is and why he must be proclaimed. I told you we were going to stay in Colossians this morning. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's Jesus is God. He's the second eternal member of the Trinity. He's the beginning, he's the end. He's the creator of all things, and he's the keeper of all things. He's the Lord of lords, he's the king of kings. Paul has just proclaimed him preeminent, equal to God the Father, and the only means to eternal life is humanity's redeemer. It's no small thing. Jesus Christ must be proclaimed. Paul is reminding this church body of who Jesus is and of whom they placed their faith in. It's not some new message, not some new shiny thing that is on the shelf, some get-fixed-quick book. He's saying, Jesus, this is who you've placed your hope in, Jesus. Remember what Peter said in Acts 2 last weekend when we were there? The first thing that he did when the Holy Spirit filled him and he stood up, what did he do? He proclaimed Jesus. He said, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus not some other Jesus that somebody's made up. This Jesus whom you crucified. It's the first thing Peter did. It's what Paul's going at here. The reason that Paul told the Colossian church to proclaim Jesus that if the, is that the church doesn't. If the church doesn't, culture will. If the church doesn't stay true to who Jesus is as the one true Savior, culture will dictate its own. It's what's going on here in this church. Rome's competing for the place of Savior. and Now they have all these other rules and regulations that are starting to float around the church. And it's among the body. It's among the body. It's an outside influence that's beginning to come in, trickle in, creep in. This Jesus. Paul's reminding them Rome's not the Savior. Christ is the Savior. So it's happening then, and guys, it's happening now. Syncretism. I'm not necessarily saying this body. Guys, in the church, syncretism. In the time this letter was written, Rome was the epicenter of the world. And just as Roman roads shrank the world, guys, today we have the internet, don't we? We have the internet, we have TV, movies, radio, social media. All those things I was talking about a minute ago, these darts that keep proclaiming messages. Not all those things are bad. Many of those things can be used to send a message. So I'm not here bashing those things. Because we must know who Jesus is. And he must be proclaimed. We also have a mobile society. Guys, today, today's culture moves more than ever before. The nations are here. We don't have to go far to find pockets of culture. You don't have to go far to find um, Indian culture or Asian culture. It's here. You can find it really close, probably among this body. Because in our community, the nations are here. The world is smaller than ever before, and with it, it's brought different views. It's brought different faith systems and rituals. It's brought syncretism. So just like in the days of Rome, this letter, this letter is really relevant now, I want to just make a confession to you. I, I really don't know why the Lord was leading me to preach this passage this week. I've always loved this passage, this hymn we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's been a little gem that I've held on for, to for years because in case I ever don't know what to say, this verse gives me something to say as a pastor. Because trying to kind of walk you guys through this field, trying to take you guys to the deep end of the pool and back quickly this week, it was frustrating. I almost jumped ship about Wednesday because this is important. And I was, about Wednesday is when I realized, guys, this is our culture. This is what's going on, the syncretism. That's why your elders guard this body. And the, the teaching here is, is so profound and so precise. It's because they want to equip this body to know how to engage the syncretism in this culture. 
So, guys, I said, if we don't proclaim who Jesus is, the culture will. And today, as I was thinking about this, our culture has made up more Jesuses than I can count. You know this to be true. We have prosperity Jesus. We have poverty Jesus. We have hippie Jesus, biker Jesus. Guys, you name it, it's out there. We even have an eight-pound, six-ounce baby party Jesus for any of you Talladega Night fans out there that I was thinking about. Right? Some of you guys got that. We laugh at that, really, but, guys, it's, it's not funny when we dig down. I was thinking that in the garden, Satan twisted who God was. He tempted our first parents into thinking God was someone that he wasn't. And he's got the same tactic today. Um, my neighborhood, I was thinking about this as I was in my neighborhood writing this, just around me, I've got Hindu neighbors right behind me, I've got some Mormon neighbors down the street, I've got conversations with seven-day Adventists down the street, and Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door often. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, we need to honor the Christ the Lord as holy and always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in us, Right? So, guys, as a church, we need to proclaim Jesus, and we need to be prepared, be prepared to proclaim Jesus. And it's hard. Jehovah's Witnesses, when they knock on my door, I really like it because it keeps me sharp, and they keep coming back. But they're ready. I mean, home is a place sometimes I want to retreat to. It's where I want to I check out. I want to veg. I want to turn on the TV. I, wanna, I go out, and I come back in, and the Scripture really doesn't allow for that. I mean, we, sometimes we have this idea of rest that we're going to go veg. But Matthew 11 says, all those, all those that are weary, come to me, and I'll give you rest. But guys, they knock on my door, and they're ready. They're, they're prepared. This one lady, she keeps coming. And the first time she came was about a year and a half ago. And uh, she came to my door, and she had a book open. And she said, have you ever thought about why there's so much pain and sickness in the world? And I said, yes. She didn't ask me what I thought about it. She just began to keep reading out of her book to me. And we had a pleasant conversation. She said, would it be okay if I came back? I said, yeah. So a couple months later, she came back. She said, have you ever thought about heaven? I said, yes. She didn't ask me what I thought about it. She just told me what she was going to say about it. And so the third time I thought, you know, if she comes back, I'm going to, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be ready to ask her some questions. So I said, the last time she came back, I said, last time you asked me if I'd ever thought about pain and sickness in the world, last time you ever thought of, asked me if I ever thought about heaven, can I ask you those same questions? And can I ask you a different one? I said, why do you believe what you believe? Where's your hope? She couldn't answer me. It wasn't in her book, it wasn't in her script, and I'm not faulting her for that, but she couldn't answer me because she didn't have this hope. And so this last time, man, she keeps coming back. This is the fourth time. And she had her daughter with her. And this time I'd gotten her a Bible. I said, God, this lady keeps showing up. She's giving me books every time. I'm going to give her one. So I had it with me, an ESV thin line in my office, and I unwrapped it in front of her. And I said, you know, you keep giving me books. I'd like to give you one. And we had a great conversation. I'm spending far too much time here. I did not intend to do this. But we had a great conversation uh, just about hope and about Jesus. And then we began to have the, the conversation of who Jesus is. Because this is what I'm saying, that him we proclaim. Because this faith system that she's operating under is not Jesus. There's a complete denial of the Trinity. And so we had a 45-minute conversation in my office at home regarding the Trinity. And we laughed and we had a good time and I had the Bible that I was going to give her open and I was showing her much of Colossians. It's actually pretty funny because 45 minutes into a pretty fun and intense conversation, my daughter runs in and they said, hey, is this your daughter? Oh, she's so cute. What's her name? I said, Trinity. <laughs> I said, do you think I believe this? And they just busted out laughing, but they said, can we come back? You bet. You bet. I'd love to have further conversation with you about who Jesus is. 
Guys, John 14, 6, says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. How about Matthew 7, 13 and 14, right? Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And those that enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And those that enter by it are few. As we know this to be true, how are they to hear if he's not proclaimed? How are we to hear amongst one another if he's not proclaimed? So Paul's reminded the church of their hope in the gospel. Now he's going to warn the church. He's saying, don't shift from this gospel. And this brings us to our second point, which is the method. This warning and teaching is expected inside the body of the church. Notice I said inside. 128, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Guys, remember who this letter is written to. Back in Colossians 1, where we started, Paul and Timothy, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. As Paul's words are, to the saints at Colossae. Those within the church body. He's warning the saints. He's warning the, the saints of the danger of secret, syncretism that's creeping into the church. Now, he says everyone here, so he's not excluding those outside the body. We know the full context of Scripture is the Great Commission. that we're to dis, the, the point of the church is to display the gospel and to make disciples. But in this context of this letter, he's saying, guys, warn each other. Admonish each other. Teach each other. Don't shift from this gospel. Don't shift from this Jesus that has just been proclaimed. Look with me to Colossians 2, verse 8. I told you we're going to stay in the book. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So in this context, he's warning this church against syncretism. But here he's also going, we're also going to see that he's going to remind and teach them of who they are. This is an identity issue he's going to shift into. So he warns and teaches, and now he's going to tell them, now he's actually, think about that. He warns and teaches, but he's warning and teaching as he's telling them to warn and teach. He's doing what he's telling them to do. Colossians 3, shift there for a second, verse 5 through 10. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Okay, he's saying, this is who you were. Here's his reminder. But now you must put, put them away, Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Ben's talked a lot about knowledge the past few weeks. Renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. We're going to watch him as he shifts the identity here. Verse 12, put on then. He's told them what to put off, put to death. Now, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's telling, this is who you are. This is who you are now. Don't shift from this. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Another way of saying that is forgiven sinners forgive sinners. Right? That's what he's saying here. As the Lord in Christ has forgiven you. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That language sound familiar? Yeah. In all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's reminding them of who they are in the gospel. He's teaching them to not move on from the gospel. He's telling them, hey, don't run to these shiny new things that are dangling in front of you, this allure of Rome and everything that's come with it. Don't run to those things. Remember who it is that you've put your hope in. Remember who you were, and now remember who you are. He said, don't run on from the gospel. Run deeper and live in godly conduct. Live in godly conduct. Guys, as I was putting this together, I thought, you know, I just need to share what I'm thinking right now. That the obvious point here is that it can be easy to think about warning and teaching others. Truth? It's not so easy sometimes to be warned and taught, is it? It's easy to think about coming into this room corporately and having Ben or one of the elders up here teaching us all together when it's all in the same context. But how about when your brother or sister comes to you in a life group and they say, hey, I've, I've seen some evidence something that may be going on in your life and maybe I'm wrong but I've seen this and I want to bring this up because guys there's a purpose here uh, and the purpose is to remember who you were remember who you, who you are and to live in godly conduct we want, to, we want to point towards maturity so it's not so easy sometimes is it but that's what Paul is telling them to do to admonish and to teach to warn and to teach one another and everyone in the gospel remember who your hope is Remember who you were, remember who you are, and don't shift your hope. There's a message and there's a method. This exposure, we talked a lot about last week, about the community and being known. Guys, this is where this is going to happen. It's necessary in the body. Quick illustration, melanoma, guys, it runs, uh, runs in my family. And because of this, I see a dermatologist about every six months to get checked out. Uh, now, the reason I tell you this is because it's very relevant to us as the church and, uh, and this idea of having been warned and taught is when I go visit my dermatologist, I am voluntarily asking this guy to find blemishes on my body. Uh, I'm fully exposed in front of this guy and I'm asking him, hey, find anything that could be wrong. That's not fun. That's not fun. Because we talked about this a lot last weekend, but this is the idea of being known. If we're going to warn and we're going to teach, right, then this is necessary. So here's what I know is that cancer runs in my family. It's not fun, but I need this. I need this kind of warning from my doctor in order to point out something that could be fatal to me. It could be fatal to my family and those around me. Because sin runs in all of our families. We need this. Challenge you last week, and I'm challenging you again. I need this. I need to be warned, and I need to be taught. Guys, there are times that I forget that I'm a Christian. Confession. There's times that I forget that I'm a pastor. You catch me at 5 o'clock on 635 in Dallas, could be one of those times. Just telling you. I've got some run-to verses, and I've got some accountability uh, for those times. It's just the, the honest truth. We sing songs about this, but I confess it to you this morning. My heart is prone to wander. It is left to myself. I'm prone to depression, and I'm prone to isolation. I'm a, I'm a bit of a secret introvert. I have no problem coming up here on the stage and talking about Christ. But if this attention shifts to me in any way, I want to go hide in a hole, in a corner, in a dark closet. Uh, I have no problem coming out and doing ministry. It's the way God has wired me. But when I'm done and I'm spent, I don't want to go back into community. I don't want to go back to my family sometimes. I want to go hide. I want to go right, shield myself from everything. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to this. And I forget who I am for a minute. Because I need accountability around me to, to point me back to who I am, who I am, and not shift from that. 
I need to be pointed sometimes to godly conduct. I need to be warned by others if others see areas of my life that are dull and need to be sharpened. My identity in Christ sometimes gets shaky, and I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded that this life is not about me, but it's to make much of him, that I'm not the center of the world. I'm not telling you that I'm some crazy, selfish, radical dude, but I can be. I can be, and that's just a true confession. Sometimes I need people to point me. I need the church to point me back and say, make much of him, not you. Make him increase. You decrease. Guys, it's this, this kind of warning, this kind of teaching that creates maturity in the church. And this is what Paul is talking about. This is admonishment. Last week, I mentioned this. I said that every member of the body is a minister to the body. Think about that. Every member is a minister. What that means is the church is to be the church. How many sermons have we heard about each, each member or part of the body belonging to this body and each person having a spiritual gift that's been assigned to them to edify and to contribute to the body? Every member is a minister. You've got your elders here to equip and to come alongside, right? But you guys are ministers to each other as well. We must admonish each other to live in godly conduct, and we must admonish each other against messages of false hope. And you guys, CF, uh, Crosspoint, they hold this in high, high regard. Just thinking about how you guys are equipped as, as husbands in this room to shepherd your families, Family discipleship is a really high value here, and it's because of this, right? Because you know as a shepherd that your family is vulnerable and that they need someone to guard them and to lead them and to protect them. So must we be with each other as shepherds. So must we be with each other as ministers to one another. And we could do a whole other sermon on taking the log out of our eye before we judge the speck in somebody else's. I'm not talking about judgment. I'm talking about here evidence of godly conduct and of running to false hope. That's what I'm talking about in this context. Don't adopt a little bit of this or run to this thing or that thing, but be reminded and remind each other of who you are in Christ and don't run from it. Guys, one more thing I think to say on this. When we admonish one another, this is not our best Dr. Phil moment. Okay, this is not our best Oprah or whatever we've seen or whatever we've heard that sounds really good and warm and fuzzy. This is deeply rooted godly conduct, grounded in wisdom, which is what he's talking about. Warning each other, admonishing another, teaching one another in all wisdom in order that we may be mature in Christ. As this is God's word, this is God's spirit, and this is God's people. When we make our need for Jesus known and we don't cover it up, when we confess and when we pray for one another, warning and teaching one another, healing occurs. Healing occurs. The church matures, and the gospel is made visible. Remember how Paul encourages this church. He said, we've heard of their faith because it was public. It was evident, and their love for one another was evident. May ours be as well. Think about that. That's the third point that I want to close with today, is that maturity is the goal. Maturity is the goal. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We know the message is Christ. We know the method we just looked at is this teaching one another, this coming alongside one another, sharpening one another towards maturity. That's the method. Now the mission, maturity. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. If you want to read along with me, it says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I told you we we're going to stay in Colossians, because this little nugget, this little 128, this little precious stone, we just keep turning it over, turning it over, turning it over. And each time we do, it shows a reflection of this letter of Colossians, doesn't it? Something we can put in our pocket and we can take with us. But he's pointing back to maturity. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith... Guys, something I've noticed in my short years of Bible study, maybe, you, maybe you've noticed this as well, is the Bible talks so much more about finishing than it does starting. You ever notice this? I think it's because starting stuff is fun. It's exciting. It's new. Right now we're in the middle of starting a church plan. It's fun. It's exciting. It's new. It's seeing what God's doing and providing all the needs and the people and bringing all this together. It's fun. It's exciting. Finishing. That's what's going to be interesting. Finishing. This three-mile-an-hour walk that your elders are always talking about, that this marathon, not this sprint, where we walk alongside one another, sharpening one another, teaching one another, admonishing one another, pressing on towards the goal. What? Maturity in Christ. Finishing is hard work, but maturity happens in the process. Who here knows what appropriation means? Anybody? Appropriation. I've heard Ben use this term, and, and and I love this appropriation. This is what it means. It means to focus on what we have already obtained in Christ and to be aware of our constant need of it. This is almost the point of the letter, is appropriation. Appropriation is maturity. It's understanding and applying the gospel in every season of life and not shifting from the gospel, but digging deeper. Not running from it, not moving on from it, but going deeper, deeply rooted. It's appropriating the gospel. Miles Stanford, who wrote a great... um, I rarely quote people, guys, but I'm going to today. It's just so uh, purposeful. Miles Stanford, who wrote a great devotional book titled The Green Letters, uh, I recommend it, said this about appropriation. He says, once we see what is ours in Christ Jesus, practical need will cause us to appropriate, to receive the answer to that need. He says this, life is meant to bring a succession of discoveries of our need for Christ. And with every such discovery, the way is open for a new inflow of supply. Guys, in layman's terms, in case that went over anyone's head like it did mine the first three times I read it, it means that for every believer there are seasons and for every church there are seasons. There's good times, there's hard times, there's temptations, there's challenges. And in every single one of these times, rather than reaching for the new thing on the shelf, rather than reaching for that shiny new thing that culture throws at us, proclaiming hope, that hope can be found in this, the next get-fix-quick solution, offering the five steps to this or the three steps to that, means this. We reach for the gospel. We grow in it. We mature in it. We become deeply rooted in it. Understanding what we already have in Christ, that we're blessed with every single spiritual blessing. Remember Ben's first uh, messages on Ephesians? Yeah, the first three chapters of Ephesians are really this idea of appropriating the gospel. Appropriating the gospel. Colossians 2, verse 6 through 7 says this, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Church, when we're deeply rooted in the gospel, when we proclaim the reason we have for our hope and that we warn each other and we teach each other to not shift from this hope, as we're refined in this process. We're matured, and we're matured into something that's beautiful. Uh, 
I wanted to shift for just a second to Ephesians 5. And this, I love Ephesians 5 in the context of marriage and how a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. But it says how Christ loved the church. And it's Ephesians 5, 25. You can go there if you want, but if not, I'll read it. It says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Splendor. Love that. Guys, this idea gets me fired up, thinking that we can prepare for our king alongside one another. We can prepare for our king. And because of our preparation, because of this warning and teaching and admonishment and preparation as the body of Christ, that others might notice and that they might meet him too. Guys, that kind of purpose is awesome. I've been up way too much this morning. You're sitting right in front of me. But I love what he says when he says, that travels. To me, that kind of purpose, that's, that's not a warm and fuzzy feeling for just a moment, that this preparation idea, that we can hear that on Sunday, go, yeah, that's real good. Where are we going to lunch? No, that we are a church body, that there's a purpose here. There's a mission here. It's to prepare for our king. Guys, that travels to Tuesday, as he says. That sticks, doesn't it? There's purpose in what we're doing here. It's maturity. It's to be bright. It's to be salty. It's to be aromatic. It's to be prepared for our groom. Guys, that travels. That sticks. I said I was almost done. I'm going to close with a story. Elizabeth and I have always loved aspen trees. We love them. But our love of them, um, we were in Colorado earlier this summer, and our love of them was recently magnified as we learned more about them. I don't know if you guys know this. Maybe some arborists in the rooms. But did you know that when you see an aspen grove, that it's not individual aspens that are growing alongside one another. Do you guys know that? They're connected. I didn't know this. I was blown away when I found this out. They share the root systems below. I didn't know this either, but they're, they're fireproof. If you talk with locals that live in the mountains, they'll tell you, that, yeah, when, when wildfires come through, aspen trees, they're the first ones to bounce back. Because they're root systems. They're connected underneath, and they're deeply rooted with one another. I thought, man, what a great picture of what the church should look like growing and maturing alongside one another, connected with, to one another, able to withstand the elements and the seasons, and maybe even fire at times. Rooted in Christ, appropriating the gospel, warning and teaching and admonishing one another in the gospel. So just outside Aspen, Colorado, it's a fitting name, is one of the most mature Aspen groves anywhere. If you haven't gone there, if you don't get a chance to go there, I encourage you to look it up on the internet. Guys, it's breathtaking, magnificent. So is to be the church, splendor, mature. 128, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Macro and micro, guys, the message is the gospel. The method is the gospel and the mission is the gospel. Let's be mature in Christ, church. Let's be distinct. Let's let our light shine. Darker, lighter, brighter, and lighter than the dark culture that we live in. Proclaiming Christ, displaying the church, making disciples. Guys, this is what we're here for. You guys join me as we pray. Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you uh, just for loving us in spite of us. God, I pray that you would help us to love one another and mature. God, for your glory and for our good. I pray that you would enable us to take this precious stone that we've picked up this morning. God, that we would take it and we would treasure it. We wouldn't leave it, but we would see its value and we would apply its value in how we live, 
God's seeking to make you smile in all that we do. God, through our actions, our words, and our lifestyles. I pray that you would prepare us as a body, mature us as a body, grow us as a body. God, able to proclaim you who you are. Always being prepared to make a defense for the others, to others, for the hope that they see in us. God, just as this church had found hope in you, may we not ever shift from this hope in you. May we not get distracted from all the darts that are thrown at us daily. May we be rooted alongside one another as your church, growing and maturing. God, may we grow in splendor. And may we, in the process, make much of you, displaying your gospel, proclaiming you, and making disciples. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.